0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to our Saturday broadcast, starting a few
1: minutes late. We're here as usual to answer questions about meditation practice and the Buddhist teaching with special emphasis on practical application of the Buddhist teaching so this isn't a uh, this isn't a session for Theoretical questions, intellectual questions, curiosity questions. This is about uh, your life and your practice and your journey. So you don't have to go looking for questions. If you don't have any questions, we'll just uh, sit and be mindful for a bit together. Those of you who do have questions that are of pressing concern, please feel free to post them in the chat at any time. Uh, I'll be back, let's say, at uh, 20 minutes after the hour to begin to answer them. so We'll start a little bit late. Uh, of the first 20 minutes, you can take your time to formulate your questions and uh, just spend the 15 minutes in silent meditation, walking or sitting or walking and
0: sitting. And I will be back at 20 minutes after to begin answering. All right, that's 15 minutes. So we're back.
1: We begin with questions and answers. So from here on, we'll remove anything that's not a question in the chat just to keep it focused. So if you've asked your question, no need to sit and read the chat. Just close your eyes, stay mindful, and we'll get to your question according to priority. Again, the priority is questions that appear to be
0: of immediate concern and importance in one's practice. Hello? Uh, Thank you, Bente. We do have questions. I'm diagnosed
2: with ADHD, and often I have trouble physically getting started with things. I know what I should do, but my body won't move. I try to note everything I feel, but it seems to mostly be bodily sensations, wanting, frustration, and I remain stuck for long periods. Is this correct practice
0: the best thing I can do? Yes, so wanting and frustration are
1: going to be a part of what's preventing you from getting started. But it sounds like you're talking about wanting to get started and frustration when you can't get started. So there's got to be a, something else there, like uh, um, there can be worry, there can be fear, there can be um, doubt about whether you should do it. There can be the, the attachment, to the liking of the laziness, the aversion towards getting started on things and so make sure you're noting that as well but yeah the as long as you're catching the the whole spectrum of experiences it's not designed to fix in a single step the fix comes from letting go which comes from seeing clearly seeing that it's not worth clinging to really getting tired of it you get tired and and lose your interest in uh, just sitting around and so on you, you lose the Uh, upset and the excitement like there can be for some people there can be aversion towards getting started so you'll see that that aversion is the real problem it's just not a a useful state but also the wanting to get started you have to note that you really just have to um, do things when you have the understanding that they're important to do and right to do at this time you don't need wanting to do them that's not going to really help in the long term But um, the best you can do is probably not that. The best you could do is to find a way to do an intensive course in mindfulness. Um, Or even, you know, we have this at-home course designed for people to get started and do something like that as a means to sort of put a structure to your practice and gain some of the
0: depth of skill that will help you better recognize what you're experiencing. Sometimes my mind is disturbed by stories
2: that keep on distracting me. What is the best way to work with that? Reflect on stories, stories, or wanting, wanting, or
1: anxious, anxious? Well, stories is probably not the best. It's not terrible, but um, one thing I would question is the statement that the mind is disturbed by stories. Now, stories don't particularly disturb you you um you're triggered by them so the disturbed is something that arises in your mind as a result of the stories and you have to note that disturbance and what do you mean by disturbance do you are you interested in them are you averse to them that sort of thing what is your reaction so make sure you're noting that Uh, wanting can be a part of that anxious can be a part of that but again, uh, you're not looking to stop that from happening. Eventually, over time, it will peter out if you practice vigilant, diligently. But your goal and your focus should just be on seeing clearly. And by seeing clearly, you have less of an attachment, and so there's less of a disturbance. And you'll find that the stories don't get created. There's only th- moments of thought. So why, which is why the stories isn't the greatest note. Better to note thinking. Try and catch... Um, the actual individual moments of experience or if you see an image that you interpret as a story try and note the image instead as
0: seeing seeing because that's what's really happening i have schizophrenia and sometimes i use my ego rising in my chest to feel
2: better and overcome paranoia i'm trying to stop doing this and heal myself
1: the right way is it possible or is my search just in vain so in mindfulness we avoid the the idea of trying to do something um or or even the idea of healing per se i mean these are sort of good narratives to have in an abstract sense but um so when you use your ego rising in your test that's a that's a conceptual idea of what's happening Uh, and your desire to feel better you're doing it in order to feel better we try and avoid that in mindfulness we try and rather gain a better perspective on what we do feel so that it no longer uh, appears to us as worse right if you want to feel better that's what you're saying is that you feel worse and you would do something to try and have an experience that you prefer so that preference is what's going to set you up for suffering and instead, we try to focus on what we do feel, so you want to feel better. Why is that? What are you feeling that you consider to be worse, to be not better, right The opposite of better uh, to be inferior and try and change your perspective so you no longer see it that way, so you're able just to, to just experience what you experience like paranoia is not really something you have to overcome as a practice you just have to come to terms with you you have to face it and gain a better perspective on even the paranoia because it's not i mean paranoia is just a fancy way of talking about fear and i'm not trying to trivialize it but trying to reduce it to the, the building blocks of what's actually there which actually there is fear and so we call it paranoia and, and it's, it's important uh, it's an important name because it means it's pretty extreme and it's uh, unreasonable and that sort of thing. But that's not really useful uh, for mindfulness. The fear is still just fear. And we're trying to, in some sense, trivialize it. We're trying to make it so that fear is just fear. It's not good, not bad, not too much, not paranoid, not unreasonable, that sort of thing. It's just fear. The, the experience is just the fear. So trying to stop doing it, that's not the practice. Try and see it clearly. Don't worry about it. Because what that does for you is it makes you invincible to the experience. The experience no longer has power over you. It just is what it is. You know, there's nothing, there's no meaning behind experiences. And I think that's a big problem with schizophrenics, is they ascribe meaning as we all do. But the meaning that they ascribe causes paranoia and so on. So rather than ascribing meaning to the experience, try and just
0: experience it. Fear, just say to yourself, Afraid, afraid. Um. yeah, and you don't have to stop,
1: right, you don't have to stop bad practices, just try and note when you want to do them, when you're doing them, try and note if you like them and that sort of thing, and just, just note it,
0: just try and stay present and try and get a better perspective that is less reactionary, and I wish you all the best, I don't know if you read our booklet on how to meditate, that might help give a little bit of guidance and we also have the at-home course if you're interested how do we deal with darkness or murkiness do we simply note it while it's there when it arises
2: is there a protective practice against these or a routine antidote such as meta for anger
1: Well, why would you seek an an antidote? Darkness is, you mean like seeing darkness? Then you would just say seeing, seeing. Murkiness, I'm not sure what you're referring to. These are just sort of abstract ideas. You have to focus on what the actual experience is. There's confusion, well, that's confusion. If there's a sense of dullness of the mind, that's just a feeling you can say dull, dull. I'm not sure what you mean by murkiness, but if you see sort of a murky, flickering or something like that that's that's just vision you would just say seeing see so and so these are not unwholesome like i mean there is a sense in a figurative way that we talk about delusion as being murkiness and that is something that's problematic and the antidote to to delusion is is wisdom is is seeing clearly which is what mindfulness is for mindfulness isn't really focused on anger or greed it's, it's actually more focused on delusion, which is the only reason why anger and greed can arise in the first place. But rather than trying to prevent anger, prevent greed,
0: we're trying to see clearly, which includes seeing the, the suffering that comes from anger and greed and so on. Since I started practicing vipassana, I observed my behavior closely.
2: When in social circles, I tend to subtly boast about myself and I feel a superiority complex. However, as soon as I am alone, I regret everything that I said. How do I control my ego? Well,
1: that's kind of a funny question. Uh, You have to understand that control is a part of the ego. And the real answer to your question lies, I think, in this, that uh, we, we maybe don't easily realize that Uh, ego is based on control it's based on um, well not just control but control is a big part of it and if you if you give up control then you also give up the identification and and the feeling of superiority the desire to be superior and that sort of thing and then the inferiority when you come back home and feel like you're a terrible person for doing that and that sort of thing i mean this is all identification and control is bound up in that control only comes because you see it as uh, as under your control as you as yours so trying to control the ego is really the wrong way of going about it it's only going to augment your your sense of self mindfulness isn't about control it's about seeing well but the word we means i mean seeing clearly so that you're seeing this is important try and see it more and more clearly more and more frequently and over time your mind will get tired of it
0: and will turn away and We'll get a better perspective on things which will allow you to eventually just let go you have said before that the arising of the word rising or falling as to be
2: after the fact of rising the stomach or falling the stomach but i feel that both things happen simultaneously can you please help clarify this
1: well, i don't normally say that about rising and falling I'm, I'm, i may have but but normally i would be cautious about that the problem with that is that the physical happens continuously and lasts some time but your noting has to happen after the experience in all cases so with rising and falling it's kind of unique in that you're noting both the beginning and the end so when it that st- when it starts to rise as soon as you realize that well the next moment you start to say to yourself rai and then at the end sing something like that so sing is when you realize it's ended so it's not uh you you only have the opportunity to note after you experience something it's more obvious with thinking which only lasts a moment when you say thinking the thought is already gone and uh, if you're unmindful it will persist i mean it will arise again and it will distract you, and so on. But the noting still has to be the next moment. So with, with the physical, it's a little bit less obvious because, again, the physical lasts multiple moments, and the rising occurs over many moments. But um, there, are, there are instances where you can actually see that. You see a moment of the rising, just a part of it, the beginning part, and then you see the middle part, and then you see the end part, and you're able to notice them and experience them as distinct. Which is a kind of a good sign that you you have clarity and you're seeing you have a sharpness of vision, sharpness of, sharpness of awareness. Yeah, you just note as soon as you notice it starts to rise, rise, sing when you notice it ends. It'll, it'll always be the next moment, of course. You can't predict it or be simultaneous because you have to be experiencing in that moment. But as soon as you've experienced then you can say of course then it has
0: to be then you say sing rising falling that's how we do it sometimes i can't pinpoint exactly what is happening and my noting is imprecise i use
1: my intellect
2: and thoughts to ponder it until i figure out the most precise term
0: is this proper
1: well, you're probably overthinking it. Um, it's really not that hard, or it shouldn't be that hard. If you can't pinpoint what is happening, you should probably note that, like doubting or unsure or, or confused. Or If it's a feeling, you note feeling. You can also just note knowing, knowing you're aware that something's happening. But uh, it can, in the beginning, be a little bit confusing and challenging, But you certainly don't, that's certainly not a sign that you're getting better at the practice. That's a sign that you still have to sort of get a little bit more real about it and a little more more, more in tune. But that can be the challenge in the beginning, that you're not really in tune with reality enough to have a clear understanding of what's going on. That's the, the
0: skill involved with mindfulness. So just take time. How important is the guru or teacher on the Buddhist path in accordance with the Theravada tradition? Well, it's pretty pretty important. Yeah, it's really,
1: I mean, you hear the Buddha talk about good friendship as being the entirety of the holy life. And by good friendship, he really means association with a teacher. He doesn't mean having lots of friends who are also practicing friend is
0: the one who teaches you um so yeah that's considered to be quite important should be a respectful relationship and
1: you should put yourself into the protection of their teacher so we have we have an opening ceremony that people can do if they if they like it's optional where they say atabawang kang chami. I I uh, give myself over to you, like like you you just like you um, give up yourself, like you 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 transfer ownership of yourself to your teacher in a way. Not, I mean, again, this is an optional thing, and it's not really as scary as it might sound. But uh, it means it's a way of saying you're just going to dedicate yourself. If the teacher tells you to do something, well, if you can't do it, you know you're going to leave, but you won't not do it and stay. Do whatever the teacher says until you feel like you have to leave. There's no compulsion. It's not a
0: promise to do. It's a promise to to, uh, follow. And... So it's a very respectful sort of relationship that's important. Um teacher is in a position to see
1: things that you are not so easily able to see and to be a little more honest about them and to make you honest, keep you honest. It often doesn't even matter whether the teacher is advanced or enlightened. They have a good understanding of the theory, it can often be enough because it's much easier to see the
0: defilements in others than it is to see in in yourself. So it's not something to be too uh, fussy about, but uh, it certainly is a good
1: thing to find people who will guide you and give you good advice. You know, basically doing meditation courses, that sort of thing.
0: Seems to be a good format, where you do a meditation course and you have a teacher you meet with every day. On this training. What are some of the signs that show that progress has been made? Well, there is really only
1: one metric, and that's the reduction of greed, anger, and delusion. I'm sorry to say it's pretty simple. Maybe sounds a little bit overly simplistic, but that's about it. Do you have less greed? Do you have less anger? Do you have less delusion? Delusion being the key point. Uh, Greed and anger are not nearly as significant as delusion. So are you able to... uh, Do you have a better greater clarity about how your mind works and why you get angry and why you you are partial to things. You have a better clarity about seeing that the things that you're partial to are not worth being partial towards. Things you get upset about are not worth getting upset about that sort of thing. And so you'll see as a result there's less greed and less
0: anger because of the clarity and the absence of delusion. That's maybe a little vague is the problem, but I mean there's I can't just give examples. you'll
1: have to see the examples in your life if you don't see them well, then it's a sign you're probably not yet seeing clearly enough to to make a difference
0: or to notice the difference. Try and work on seeing clearly I mean honestly, to really get a good solid conviction even
1: of the the efficacy of the practice, it's best to try and do some formal practice, like a formal course. It's just the at-home course, but, but even better to try and do an intensive course where you spend some time
0: developing the foundations of the practice. Do you have advice? for certain OCD-type tendencies when noting,
2: like making a note, then judging self for making an incorrect note,
1: noting the judgment, feeling uncertain, and these loop cycles? Yeah, I mean, the, the big problem, like OCD, ADHD, these things are kind of hiding something important, and that's the moments of experience that are triggering them. So it's kind of a bit mysterious and it kind of glosses over the real issue when you say something like ocd or adhd you give it a label and that seems beneficial because now you're you're reassured that you know it's an actual thing but it's not actually actually a thing the thing is these moments of triggers that occur so all the things none of the things you've mentioned except maybe the judging uh refer speak back to the actual problem of getting triggered Like, um, why do you judge, and how do you feel when you judge, and so on. Try and note the worry, the fear, the disliking, the liking, the wanting, and so on. Hindrances are basically going to be the makeup of what causes problems. Um, that, That being said, practically speaking, it is okay to just note things in a loop again and again, because that's the kind of thing that's going to make you tired of them. You're going to lose your, your excitement that causes you to spiral out of control. Just try and see it again and again and learn patience to just experience things on repeat. It really is an important part of the practice to start to see that they are on repeat and senselessly on repeat. That's like the core. It's a core insight in mindfulness practice is to see that reality and experiences are senselessly on repeat so don't shy away from that don't think oh and this is getting nowhere that's the point it's getting nowhere to see that it's getting nowhere to see that it's getting nowhere and let go as a re- let go of it let go of trying to get somewhere you know, let go of this meaningless chasing your tail the only way it happens is by seeing it so that you're starting to see it as a loop as Uh, as a cycle, is actually a sign, a good sign. It's just something that you have to, rather than shy away from or try to fix, you have to uh, come to terms with and face and be patient towards. Let it come. If you see that enough, that cycle, that continuous, incessant, senseless, pointless cycling, your mind will, over time, if you'd say, do it without reacting, and if you have mindfulness towards it, over time your mind will just let go. We'll get tired. Atanibindatiduke. We'll become disenchanted with the suffering, bored of the suffering, tired of the suffering, tired of something
0: that is clearly causing you to suffer. Now, our everyday life after meditation. Should we continue focusing on the
2: sensations of the breath, or should we focus more on the sensation of the
1: body, such as hand, feet, tongue, face? Well, hand, feet, tongue, face are not sensations. Uh, In everyday life, we recommend to focus on postures of the body, like walking, standing, sitting, lying. They're just good sort of conventional names for the experience of the post, the experience of the body. So sitting is an experience of what it feels like to sit. Standing, what it feels like to stand. Walking is an experience of the foot moving, like walking, walking. Lying down, same thing. Just try and note those four as a sort of base. And then any movements you can note. It's the movements that you would want to note, apart from that.
0: You can also note the senses in daily life. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling. Thinking, of course. My understanding is that a Buddha, at least in some circumstances, can predict
2: whether and when someone becomes a Buddha or Arahant. Can this foresight
0: apply universally, or are there limits? Yeah, I don't know. Not really a practical question, so I'm disinclined to speculate on that. I am seeking advice for dealing with lust in the long term. Sexual desire is built into us,
2: and I see it as defilement, but many times it feels like torture. Is it more conducive to follow the Buddha and get it out of my system until the age of 29?
0: Don't we need more experience to know its delusion? Yeah, the Buddha didn't choose, and he wasn't the Buddha then, but he didn't
1: decide to get it out of his system. He just didn't know any better until he was 29. And many people who followed after the Buddha were lucky to uh, get out of the lay life earlier. So there were children as young as seven, but much more common around 20. So the Buddha said at 20, that's a good time. And that's when you can become a monk. Of course, you you can become a novice earlier, and there were many people who did that. But uh, if you're in the situation where you see the stress and the suffering, the torture involved with it, then. Really, it's it's important to understand how how close to impossible it is to do living in the lay life. It's if you have that sort of sexual desire, it's not just going to go away by living your life, by trying to distract yourself with other things. You really need a, a supportive environment. Like the only pr- really good practical way of doing that is to become a monk. Or so that's uh, probably the best advice I could give you. Otherwise, just appreciate that it's not really at the top of your list. I mean, even a sotapanna can still have children and, and sexual intercourse and romantic partners. That's a sotapanna, someone who has already seen Nibbana. So that should really be kind of the first priority. Don't worry so much about lust and sexual desire. Worry more about, say, the five precepts, killing, stealing, cheating, lying, drugs and alcohol. And if you can keep them, well, then you can have times where you keep the eight precepts, maybe once a week on Sundays or Saturdays or something, and then you can try to do an intensive meditation course where you keep the eight precepts for uh, for an extended period of time, and you work on that. Eventually, you get to the point where you feel comfortable ordaining and going the next step, and and then you have the if you're in the right environment as a monk, you can find it much easier to. prevent prevent those experiences free yourself from those experiences or and also prevent them like there's less opportunities so it's easier to deal with much easier to be mindful
0: there's not the opportunities to indulge and so on could you explain sampajanya, vitaka and vichara
2: from a practical perspective during meditation
1: well, vitaka and vijara are only used as meditation terms when talking about the jhanas. So, I mean, in satipatthana practice, it gets a little bit complicated, I guess, um, because there is a sense that vitaka and vijara can go away at times. But it's nothing like what you might experience in samatha practice. So they're used mostly to talk about samatha jhanas trance states where the mind is just fixed and focused on a single object with no distracted distracting thoughts basically now in mindfulness practice as you read in the satipatthana suit, it's a little bit different there's a sense that you are paying attention to the distractions and just facing them and being a little more flexible less fixed and focused on a conceptual object more focused on reality sampajanya is really just another word for wisdom technically but um, it seems to have been used to talk about a clarity of mind um, focused on experience so it's a, sort of a product of being mindful when you're mindful you recognize and you fix the mind on an object in the proper way meaning seeing is just seeing. So you have a sense of it as just seeing. Then there is the sampajanya, which is just basically a description of what it's like to be mindful. They're generally paired, sati-sampajanya. And you see in the uh, in the Satipatthana Sutta, they're also put together, atapi sampajano satimadu. They're used together. Sampajanya is usually used in that way, and so it's kind of used to describe what it's like to be mindful. You're, but, uh, some, but, ja, janya, janya is from nya, the root meaning to know, but means fully or in a in a special sense or in a heightened sense, knowing clearly maybe, and some means composed in a sense. I mean, it's just, a, these prefixes just apply the meaning, they hint at the meaning of kind of a clear knowledge of things as they are. Which is technically considered to be wisdom, but uh, it's it's used as a word to to, to describe something a little more uh, abstract, maybe or a little more practical than than simply the idea of
0: wisdom. But that's what it is. Wisdom is not a thinking thing. Wisdom is a perspective, more like a perspective. What is the main text to follow for a Theravada Buddhist? Well, I'd like to say the Satipatthana Sutta, honestly. I know it's not comprehensive, but I mean, I guess that's the point.
1: Is there's no one comprehensive text? There's lots of talks. Uh, If we had one text, it would be the Visuddhimagga, which is kind of a explanation of the Buddhist teachings, a very ancient sort of commentary or a, a of gathering together of all the commentaries and putting them into a sensible, sensible, sensical, uh, meaningful uh, framework, putting them in, in the framework of the seven, what we call the seven wisuddhis seven purifications. And then it details in order
0: from one to seven, is kind of a description of the Buddhist path in Theravada Buddhism. Sometimes noting feels like an obstacle
2: to entering samadhi, the eighth factor. Can you explain how noting
1: and samadhi can coexist? You don't enter samadhi. Samadhi isn't a room or a place that you enter. You can enter into jhana, which is a kind of samadhi, or it's a, it's a way of talking about samadhi, but samadhi is just a quality of
0: mind. It's not a thing that you enter. The thing about um, noting is
1: is that it puts you in touch with reality. And noting isn't the obstacle. The obstacle is reality because reality is impermanent, unsatisfying, uncontrollable. The only way to enter into apana samadhi, um, which is a jhana state, is to put aside your experience of reality, to kind of not experience reality in a sense, to only focus on a single object like a light or a color and that's not or or you say eighth factor you're obviously talking about the eightfold noble path and so the other option is to become enlightened through the practice of mindfulness and then there will be the the non-distraction so absolutely mindfulness is not an obstacle mindfulness is the cat the catalyst but it is um quite likely that you're you have the idea of um going into a trance state of experience and that's not what the eightfold noble path is the eightfold noble path is cessation so there's no oh now i'm in the jhanas or something like that there's the cessation which comes from letting go and it has samadhi because it doesn't it isn't distracted it. it doesn't have samadhi because you feel focused or you feel calm or you feel fixed on a single object it's not like that it's there is no feeling like feeling whatsoever. There is no um, conscious
0: arising of experience. There's the cessation. That's the Eightfold Noble Path.
1: And to get there, you need to see the three characteristics. You need to focus on things that are chaotic, unpredictable. Why? Because that, those are the things that you cling to, and it's only by seeing them as chaotic, unpredictable, unsatisfying, uncontrollable, that you'll ever let go. And letting go is the only way there will be cessation. It's cause and effect. Cessation is the only way there will be the eighth factor of the Noble Path. So don't misunderstand that that somehow uh, ordinary focus or concentration is, is one of the factors of the Path. It's not. The eight factors arise
0: together in one moment. And that moment is the cessation of suffering. Can non-vegetarian food affect our meditation in any way? Not meaningfully, no. I mean, the only way it might is that it, uh,
1: well, two ways I can think of. One is that it makes you tired and lazy, and two, it affects your health. So if you're eating red meat, it's apparently carcinogenic and, well, getting cancer can certainly affect your meditation. But those are very
0: oblique, sort of roundabout ways of affecting. There's no direct effect from eating meat. What are the ways to meditate during a state of
2: strong addiction? I tried to do mantra meditation that you taught and noted
1: lust and body. But these unwholesome states are
2: overpowering.
1: Yeah, I mean, just like the other person, you really need a supportive environment. This is the problem. I mean, l- learning that it's such a problem and that it's, it it's overpowers you is valuable in the short term, or no, in the long term. Um, it's just something that you have to get a, a deeper and more profound appreciation of over time. I mean, it's this isn't, this is, a useful realization that it's not a switch you can turn off mindfulness isn't a magic pill it's just going to work and suddenly you don't have these problems anymore this is eventually potentially or, or likely for most people a many lifetime solution like it's going to take multiple lifetimes to come to terms with if you ever do come to terms with it so you know buckle down and and if you want quicker results you really need to do more intensive practice find a supportive environment and really dedicate yourself to cultivating the skill of mindfulness, because it's a skill. And it's a skill that's contrary to the habit of lust and desire.
0: So they're not going to work together. They're not going to be able to cultivate them together. Critics of the Mahasi method say it's limited and can
2: only take you to sotapanna. Due to latency of noting experiencing,
0: it must be abandoned after clear mindfulness is established. Can you refute this? Hmm. Well, give show me some evidence or some 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 theory as to I mean I, I don't have to refute it. You're making the claim. That, uh, that because of this, this is not possible. I don't see any real um, logic behind the argument. I mean, you haven't given any real re-
1: anything to really refute. So you bring up the word la- latency as if that were a thing. I mean. Any any application you apply you do to an experience is always going to be the next moment. So latency isn't really an issue. The the noting itself is um, a thought process. It's an abstract sort of sort of um, construct, or not abstract, but it's uh, intellectual, or, or I don't know. Like it's it requires mental activity to find the word and so on. But that activity cultivates mindfulness. It's called tirasanya. I mean, let's put it this way. I'm not going to answer in the way that I... So the way that I just did is going down the idea of describing why it works. But here's the thing. If something leads you to sotapana, there is no way it can't lead to arahantship. I mean, that's kind of absurd. Anyone who says that, I think they're just... um, they have akati, they have a, kind of a, a bias against the practice. So they're trying to find a, an argument. It's kind of ridiculous. How could anything that leads you to sotapanna not lead you to sakatagami, anagami, and arahant? That's, I think, the best answer, not to go into the details of latency and so on. Like, like if, it, if there's a problem with latency, how could it lead to be a sotapana? The object of sotapanna is the same as the object of arahantship it's just greater clarity uh, you know greater appreciation but it's the same experience it's the cessation of suffering nibbana isn't different there's
0: not some different practice that you should do for the second the third and the fourth path until we've crossed the hour and you've answered all the questions in the top tier. Shall we call okay, it for the day?
1: Thank, yeah, thank you all for the questions. Thank you, Chris and Jim and whoever else was helping today. A lot of questions, that's great. Thank you all for being so thoughtful and interested in the Buddha's teaching and the practice of mindfulness. I wish you all the best in your practice. Those of you who are suffering, may you be free from suffering. Those of you who are Free from suffering, may you share and spread the teaching far and
0: wide. Have a good week, everyone. Sadhu. Adem.